Luke 14, verses 1 to 24. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I have just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes, and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Let's pray as we come to, to God's word. Dear Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would open our eyes to see clearly, that we would know the real Jesus, and we would know ourselves, not through our own distorted lens, but as you see us, as those you have made in your own image, and those for whom you are full of compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. We're starting a new sermon series uh, this morning called Jesus the Revolutionary. It's probably not the first title you might associate with Jesus. But when you read through the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of Luke, which is the one we're going to be concentrating on over the coming weeks, what you find is someone who challenged and transformed the religious 
and social order of his time. People that he focused his attention on were the religious leaders. Instead of shepherding the flock uh, that had been entrusted to them, they were busy weighing people down with more guilt and with more burdens. They were more interested in their own power and authority and serving others. And Jesus wasn't afraid to confront this, confront them about this. He didn't just try and undermine the, the existing structures. He came to replace them uh, with a whole new way of living. He came to reverse the values of the society at that time, which, as we will see, were not much different from the society in which we live today. Jesus knew that what most people want in whatever time period they live is to be happy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But he challenges how to to find happiness. And the big problem for many is that they're looking in the wrong place. They're looking for happiness in their popularity, in their success, maybe in their money, in short-term pleasurable experiences. And the trouble is none of these things is reliable. Popularity, success, money, health all come and go. Experiences don't last. These things are all short term. Jesus' revolutionary teaching was that true happiness cannot be found in anything this world has to offer. And it can't be found in trying hard to make, make yourself good enough for God. Happiness comes in accepting Jesus' invitation of a relationship with him and seeking to grow closer in that relationship, which in turn involves serving others rather than ourselves. At the heart of this revolutionary way of living is a, a principle that we read in our passage this morning. The humble shall be exalted. This principle we come across right at the beginning of the, the book of Luke, when the young Virgin Mary was told that she would be the mother of Jesus. She praised God by singing these words that we find in chapter 1 of Luke. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Jesus demonstrated that principle in practice when he himself humbled himself and came to earth as a man to die a humiliating death for our sakes. As a result, he was raised to life and exalted to the right hand of the Father where he now reigns. And he caused his followers to humble themselves in the expectation that they too will be exalted by the Father. Many of the other reversals that we'll be seeing over the next few weeks in chapters 14 to 18 of Luke's Gospel are linked to this theme of humility. The least become the greatest. The losers become the winners. The lost become found. The poor become rich. The outsiders become insiders. The dead become living. And the victims become vindicated. So let's look at the first of those this morning, the least 
become the greatest in Luke chapter 14. The first point the passage teaches us is that God has compassion on the needy. Jesus is invited to eat in the house of a, a prominent Pharisee on the Sabbath. And normally when you're invited to a Sunday lunch, you don't really want to upset your host. Maybe you steer clear of certain controversial topics. But Jesus is driven more by compassion than convention. When he sees in front of him a man suffering from uh, what is called abnormal swelling of his body, he cannot ignore him. He knows the Pharisees have come up with all sorts of uh, rules about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, and so he simply asks them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Underneath that question is, am I prohibited from showing compassion on the Sabbath? Of course, compassion is something we should show at all times. We shouldn't be prevented by man-made rules from, from showing it. And so Jesus heals the man. And he emphasizes this point by asking the Pharisees, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? In other words, even if you don't have compassion on this man, would you have compassion on some, someone or something that is important to you? So in both cases, they had nothing to say. They knew Jesus was right. At the heart of Jesus' revolutionary message, what drives him is his compassion. And it should be what drives us to, to share the gospel of salvation, to do good works to, to others. Our constant prayer should be for hearts of deeper compassion. Hearts that are more concerned for the needs of others than the needs of ourselves. God has compassion on the needy. But what does he do? Him. Well, God exalts the humble. Jesus looks around and sees uh, what is going on. He sees that the guests are jostling for the places of honour. The table would probably have been arranged in a, in a U shape with the host and the most important guests at the head of the table. And everyone wants to be at the head, near the host, where the action is. Everybody wants to be out on a limb, so to speak. So when you go out for a meal with a group of friends and you have one long table and there's that awkward moment when everybody arrives and looks for where to sit. Normally those who are either a bit more reserved or maybe just more humble um, will tend to sit on the edges. Or those who want to be in the centre of things go to the middle. Out of compassion, Jesus gives some advice to the guests at this meal. He says, if you're invited to a wedding feast, don't just go for the top table. Because someone more important than you may have been invited. And the host will come along and tell you to um, move down the table. That would be pretty humiliating to be relegated to the lowest place. But if you yourself choose the lowest place, then the only way from there is up. Your host may come and invite you to a better place. And you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. Well, Jesus is not just um, teaching them some dinner party etiquette or tactics to, to help them be honoured and avoid humiliation. He's just using this as an illustration of his main point, which is that all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Yes, that's about how we behave towards others, but more importantly, it's about how we behave in relation to God. To exalt yourself towards God is to say, look at me. Aren't I good enough to be accepted by you, become part of your, your kingdom? Don't I deserve your love? Look at the way I lead my, my religious life. To humble yourself is to, to accept that I have nothing to offer God that will make me deserve his love. I'm totally dependent on his mercy towards me. You may have some tremendous success in this world, you may have a big house, a successful career, loads of friends. And all that counts for anything in God's eyes. Because he's the one who blessed you with that anyway. God is more interested in us coming to him in humility and asking for his mercy. Now that sounds easy, but actually it's very hard, isn't it? Because it goes against everything we are taught by our society, which is to seek the honour and the respect of others through our achievements. Our society values success, whether it's in business or academia or, or sport or in social life. It's become for many people their, their identity. And that's why it's the biggest cause of our problems, why it's led to so much mental illness. Because people cannot live up to the expectations of others or the expectations they put on themselves. It's a particular problem for elite athletes, as Graham Daniels explained in a recent interview uh, with one of our former church members, John Paul Davis, on Sky Sports News recently. And we're going to watch a short clip from that interview now. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, the challenges of the pandemic on mental health are something that we're all very conscious about. I know that you speak about matters of, of faith and mental wellness. Um, look, I, I suppose in your role as Managing Director of Christians in Sport, it's a time where a lot of people are looking for hope. Now, you talk about faith, you talk about the Christian faith within a footballing context, you know all about that world as well. So what hope do you think that faith brings to people? Well, I think at the heart of the mental health issue that we're dealing with, particularly in professional football at the moment, and I think dealing with it well, all the established research, without, without exception, all the established research about identity and professional sport shows two things. Number one, elite athletes must know that somebody loves them whether they win or lose. Your life is consumed with winning or losing, of course, and performing. If somebody loves you independent of your performance, you will have a better balance on life. Secondly, if you can achieve that better balance from unconditional acceptance, what you'll find is that you've got a better vision for life beyond your sport, and it'll just make you a richer human being. Now, if that's critical in professional sport for, for good health, the Christian sport, of course, fundamentally for 2,000 years, the Christian faith has held to those two things, that you're loved unconditionally by a creator who comes into this world for you, and two, that if you can grasp that you're loved in that way, you can look at the world of sport around you, and I've been in it for 35 years in this context, and say, come on, let's use sport to make our communities and our country and our world a better place. So those two things working together at the heart of Christianity are definitely at the heart of 
good mental health in professional sport. Graham, it's uh, a really encouraging message and uh, well, great, uh, a great message to have this Friday afternoon. Listen, we're really thankful for your time. Thank you so much for joining us. The point that Graham Daniels was making is that if we are loved unconditionally, we know we're loved unconditionally, that then whether we win or lose in sports or in life in general, then it doesn't matter. It's incredibly liberating to be loved unconditionally. And that assurance enables us to flourish and to enjoy life. We can sit at the end of the table because even if we don't have the respect of other human beings, we know we are precious in the eyes of God. And there's nothing more important than that. God exalts the humble. Which means that God invites those who have nothing to offer. Having given some advice to the guests, Jesus then gives some advice to the host. This time about who he should invite to his meals. And this is very different from how most people would decide who to invite for a dinner party or for a Sunday lunch. Probably friends or family would be at the top. And those maybe you've invited but who haven't invited you back might be near the bottom. Jesus said in verse 12, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid on the resurrection of the righteous. Invite those who cannot invite you back. Jesus is talking about those who are physically or financially unable to do so. There are plenty of people you can invite who um, would not feel able to invite you back for various reasons. Maybe because they feel they couldn't possibly match your standard of cooking. Maybe because they live on their own and couldn't cope with um, having all your, your children, your whole family. Maybe because they're just not in great health. And the idea of cooking a big meal is too much. Maybe because they just don't feel good enough. I know there are lots of people in this church who do make a point of inviting those on their own, those who they know would never be able to invite them back. And that is a wonderful demonstration of God's love. The point Jesus is making is not simply, we'll try hard to invite those who don't have any friends. He's teaching us about God's invitation to invite us to be a part of his kingdom. At one level we are special to have received an, an invitation, but at another, another level we're not, because everyone has received an invitation. To get an invitation doesn't depend on how good-looking you are, how, how popular you are, how much money you have, how successful you are. Everyone is invited. You don't have to somehow justify your invitation. So I accept the invitation. What are the benefits of being part of Jesus' kingdom? Well, there are lots of good things about being part of Jesus' kingdom that we can enjoy right now. Like knowing that we are forgiven for all the wrong things that we do. Knowing we are loved even when we don't deserve it. Having someone you can call out to for help when you are finding things tough. 
knowing there is someone who understands exactly how you feel and what you're thinking. But these things are nothing compared to what it will be like when we die and go to be with Jesus and meet him face to face. That's when the real party will begin, when we see God in all his glory. A party that will continue for eternity in the new heavens and new earth when we receive our resurrection bodies. The trouble is many people can't think about the future. They can only think about what gives them the most pleasure now. Which brings us on to our final point. It's not just about who is invited, it's about who will accept the invitation. God invites those who don't feel good enough to be part of his kingdom, who know they have nothing to offer. God welcomes those who accept his invitation. As I said, it's not that God doesn't invite others, he invites all sorts of people, he invites uh, the rich and the poor. But not everybody accepts his invitation. Imagine you've been playing, planning this massive party for, for years, and you've got your friends to put it in their diaries, Eventually, all the preparations are ready, and you tell your friends, okay, looking forward to seeing you all. And one by one, they come up with an excuse which says, actually, I've got something better to do. How do you feel? In the parable that Jesus tells, the man preparing the great banquet sends his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Table is laid with delicious food, the, uh, the drinks are on ice, the band is warming up. But we're told they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. I don't think the guest is saying, I need to go and plough the field and sow some seed right now. He's just saying, I need to go and check it. Maybe to make sure that he got a good deal, to check whether um, there was a well nearby that he could draw water from, whether there was a good wall around it. Whatever it was, it could have waited. The field would still be there the following day. But it was more important to him than accepting the invitation of his friend. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Maybe he wanted to make sure that his new animals were all healthy and that uh, he hadn't bought a sick one. But I'm sure he would have done all the necessary checks before buying them. Again, they're not going to go away. They'll still be there tomorrow. The point is they were more important to him than accepting the invitation of his friend. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. I want to spend time with my new wife, which is a good thing. Um, we don't know whether she was invited as well. It's good to spend time getting to know your wife when you've just got married, but it doesn't mean you have to spend all your time together and ditch your old friends, especially if you've accepted an invitation. So the servant comes back and tells his master all the excuses that they came up with. And he clearly wasn't very pleased. What did the master then tell his servant to do? Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. In other words, all the people who don't normally get an invitation, who don't have many friends, who don't have money to buy oxen and fields. 
and are going to be very pleased to get an invitation to a banquet. Maybe the only invitation that they ever get. The thing about these people is that they, they're not going to be able to invite you back because they won't be able to afford to have a party. Anyway, they all come and there's still room for more at the party. So the master asks a servant to go out to the roads and country lanes, in other words, where you might find others sleeping rough and under hedges, and compel them to come. They might need more persuading to come to the party in the city. They may not even know the man giving the party. Probably won't believe that they've really been invited. Who would invite them? God has been planning this party for all time. All through the Old Testament, he sends messengers, prophets, to tell his people about the great party that will happen one day. In Isaiah, we read, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. But when Jesus eventually arrives, to tell people about his kingdom and his party, he's rejected. Why is that? Because they didn't see him for who he really is, the Son of God. People then and now were too wrapped up in their own lives, too focused on the here and the now, more interested in what is going to give them immediate pleasure, and buying new things, going on the internet and having a look, maybe going out for a meal, a rishi-dishi, as we heard this week. It was finding somebody to love. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but what's most important is our friendship with Jesus, because that will last forever, and he will never let us down. And that's why in the, the next passage in Luke that we'll come on to next week, Jesus talks about his followers being willing to give up everything they have, for him. In other words, putting him first. The question I want to leave you with this week is, are you going to accept the invitation? You don't have to do anything to be good enough to be friends with Jesus. He accepts you as you are, whether you're poor or blind or lame. If you've been blessed with much in this life and you decline Jesus' invitation, you not only lose out, but you'll face God's judgment and the greatest will become the least. Jesus says, I tell you that one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. If you don't accept the invitation, you only have yourself to blame. The party will go ahead anyway. It'll be full, but without you. If you've been blessed with little in this life and accept the invitation, then the blessings you have to look forward to will far outweigh anything you feel you may have missed out on in this life. The least will become the greatest. Don't put off that decision to accept the invitation, thinking you've got loads of time. The longer you leave it, the harder it becomes, because all those other things that bring short-term pleasure will have taken over your life. And none of us knows how long we've got. Accept the invitation with gratitude. Book your place at the table for the greatest party ever. Let's pray.
Dear Father, we thank you that each of us has been invited to your party, to join your kingdom, to live with you forever in eternal joy. Thank you that our invitation doesn't depend on anything that we have to offer, but simply on your love for us that you've showed us in Jesus Christ. Help us not to be so caught up in the the short-term things of this world that we miss out on those wonderful blessings that will last for eternity. And if we're struggling in this life, Lord, please give us the strength to persevere with the reassurance that our eternal glory will far outweigh our earthly sufferings. In Jesus' name.